Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. Welcome to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Think Radio, where each week we talk to a musician, artist, author, or other creative Mississippian working in the arts across the state. I'm your host, Melody Moody Thordis, Director of Grants at the Mississippi Arts Commission. On today's show, I'm speaking with Sophie Glenn, a visual artist who works in wood, metal, and steel, and explores the relationship between these worlds. Sophie is a 2021 recipient of a Mac Fellowship Grant in Sculpture. Thanks so much for being here with us today, Sophie. Thank you for having me. Well, um, I want to kind of talk about, you know, growing up and and um, your studies in these areas. But before we do that, will you give our listeners just a brief overview of how you would describe yourself as an artist? Sure. Uh, so I am a furniture maker and metal worker. And my most recent body of work deals with uh, making reproduction uh, furniture pieces completely out of painted and rusted steel. So the idea is that they look like wood antiques, but I make them completely out of steel. Well, um, we're going to really talk a lot about that. And I'm going to ask you a lot of questions. I'm going to encourage everyone listening to, to check it out. Um, I know it's, it's, it's difficult to describe visual art on the radio. Uh, So I'm really hoping that we can paint, paint our listeners a picture and also encouraging them to look at it. So you um, are originally from New York. Uh, yep. Tell me about um, growing up. Were you raised in New York City? Yes, I was born and raised in Manhattan. Um, and my dad is a bartender and owns a bar. And my mom worked in retail. And uh, I sort of grew up in both of those environments. Um, and I was fortunate enough to go to an arts high school uh, where I studied art. And I was always pretty um, involved in the arts, even from a, a young age. I was always drawing or doing something. So I was pretty fortunate to be able to do that um and yeah growing up in new york was pretty great like museums were a dime a dozen and (laughs) lots of opportunities there for all sorts of entertainment so yeah well you you talk about you know kind of always being uh involved in the arts in some way interested in the arts Mm -hmm. um so I'm, i'm curious if you have any early memories about just kind of exploring um a certain a certain type of art or what you found yourself drawing you know as, as a young person uh one of my earliest memories actually is just me sta- uh, sitting in the corner of one of our uh, uh living room of the apartment and just drawing I think I think it was a picture of my mom or something <laughs> <laughs> um so I remember that from a pretty early age and uh and that was really like my only um or at least the most accessible means for art to me was drawing uh, from a very early age. And it wasn't until I got to college where I really was able to explore all these diff- all these other different media um, and got into sculpture and eventually metalworking and furniture making. Um, but yeah, I'm, um, that's probably the earliest memory I have. And there's always been other drawings and sketches and maybe dabbled in painting very briefly and printmaking and stuff like that as well. Well, yeah, so then, so, so as you kind of grow in your artistic study, you go to uh, SUNY Purchase College mm-hmm. uh, and you study sculpture there. So um, 
how are you building your craft there? And is that where you started to get interested in pursuing further study in woodworking and furniture design? Or were you more focused on, you know, more traditional um, sculpture, drawing, that kind of thing? Well, I was introduced to a more uh, traditional sculpture while I was in that program, but also uh, a unique aspect of that program was that we had a Wingate artist in residence each semester who um, specialized in furniture making as part of the wood classes we had there. Um, and one of the uh, visiting artists was Vivian Beer, who does metal furniture for a living. And she was able to teach a class while she was there. And that's when I really started to fall in love with metalworking and sort of realized that that was a, an avenue for me to travel in. Um, so, and that was, that happened sort of, I, I did a five-year program, I like to say. So that was in my first part of my senior year. <laughs> um, and it was there that I really decided that this is what I wanted to do and make, uh, eventually make all steel furniture. But at the time I was, I was sort of blending the woodworking and the metalworking uh, educations that I received. I really wanted to go get my MFA because I feel like I, when I had really gotten into furniture making and woodworking in undergrad that I really just scratched the surface and I really did not get um, maybe as much of, it, of an education as I really wanted to. Um, so that was a big reason why I decided to get my MFA in that. Um, and now, uh, like I was sort of brought in as a metal worker and made these wood and steel pieces. So I sort of, I still mainly worked in steel while I was in that program, but I made completely different work than what I was making, what I'm making now. Uh, but woodworking still very much informs my practice, even to this day. Like there's a lot of woodworking techniques and um, processes that I incorporate into the metalworking as a different means of fabricating, really. Um, and for a while, I only had like two, two, wow, two tools, really. So it was my welder and my angle grinder. So I really had to be inventive with the different types of fabrication techniques I can do with those two uh, tools. Um, so that's where the woodworking education really came into play quite a bit. Well, um, we're going to spend some time uh, during our conversation today, really delving into your current work and um, particularly in, in steel. And, and so I want to, I want to just go back a little bit to the woodworking. What are some of the basic concepts um, within that, whether that you studied and learned from and, or that have helped you incorporate um into your current work? Uh, so, I mean, a lot of woodworking techniques are sort of based around how wood can be joined together because woods, like as a material, it's always moving and changing with the season. So uh, a good example is like different joinery methods were uh, created to sort of work around those, uh, those seasonal changes in the wood. So uh, one example I use in my metalworking is not necessarily a joinery technique, but it's a, a method of um, bending wood, which is called kerf bending. So you take a flat board essentially and make a series of uh, shall uh, somewhat shallow cuts all the way through it. And you're basically able to take, take enough material out where you can actually physically bend that piece of wood into a, a, a shallow curve. Um, so I do that same technique with steel where if I'm making curved elements in my furniture pieces, I can um, make cuts with it on my angle grinder, not cutting all the way through um, and then bend it over a form that I I've made out of MDF or some other maybe plywood or some some other material um, and then weld those seams together so I can create essentially any curve that I want um, 
And the reason I started doing that was because I did, I'm not really well versed in blacksmithing techniques, which is normally how you would go about doing that. Um, and I was working mostly with tube steel, so um, hollow pieces. And usually you would do blacksmithing techniques with solid stock. Um, so it was, a, it was a matter of uh, one, not having the expertise or the blacksmithing shop available to me, um, and also uh, just working with the tools that I had. Um, so that's where the woodworking really kind of came into play in the, the work that I've created um, now, yeah. Well, you've completed residencies at the Aramont School of Crafts in Gatlinburg and the Appalachian Center for Crafts in Smithville. Mm -hmm. You've spent time at Penland School of Crafts in North Carolina, and I know you've exhibited in Asheville, Knoxville, Blacksburg, Abington, <laughs> and, you know, that is uh, where I'm from. So I'm a okay. native of the Southern Highlands uh, or Southern Appalachia. Oh, nice. uh, and so I just have to ask, I'm curious to hear more about your experience honing your craft in that area. Uh, I'm particularly interested in if how the study of Appalachian craftsmanships kind of differed from your study in New York or San Diego or Vermont, because um, it sounds like you really delved into that particular Southern Highlands um, area in some of your work. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was a, an area where I really had no idea about until I was actually in it. Um, and there's such a rich uh, history in all, basically all along the Appalachian region um, of crafts. And um, like you think of the Foxfire books and things like that. Um, and like furniture making is like a lot of the things that I do now are sort of based in those, uh, uh, based in that region, in, or at least the early stages of that work was uh, because I was in it and I was exposed to it on a, on, on a regular basis. Um, and now it's like the work has sort of grown a bit because uh, I've like since changed locations, but, um, but it's really greatly informed my practice. And I've learned more about the history of these craft practices and particularly of the Appalachian region. Um, and it, that certainly informs the practice too, in, in many ways, because there's a big research element of my work. Like if I'm working on like a, particular chair, like a ladder back chair is a good example. Like you see those all over the South um, and figuring out like the rich history of that chair and why it was produced and the sort of different methods that were used to produce it. Um, it all kind of informs my practice even to this day. Yeah. Yeah. That, well, it's, it's very fascinating to me. Thank you. For, <laughs> yeah. Thank you for letting me uh, quote my uh, curiosity on that yeah, one. Yeah. Um, so you've exhibited your work across the country, um, including at the center for art in wood in Philadelphia and the Metal Museum in Memphis. Um, so since Memphis is a little closer for uh, Mississippians, can you tell us a little bit about uh, the museum itself and uh, some of your exhibitions there? Uh, sure, so um, the Metal Museum is one of the only museums dedicated solely for metalworking. Um, so they put on a lot of different uh, exhibits over the year and they have uh, the museum space itself and they also have an educational space where they have uh, sort of a permanent collection of various works acquired over the years of metalworking pieces. Um, and the shows I had there, I was part of their um, 40 Under 40 exhibition that went on 2017 or 28, I think it was 2018 maybe. Um, and then from that, I was able to get my first solo show at the Metal Museum, um, which exhibited the works that I uh, am making today, which is called the Rust Never Sleeps series. Um, so Metal Museum is kind of near and dear to my heart now, even though I've only been a part of, <laughs> part of them for a couple of years, but 
uh, I think it was a really perfect venue to have a first solo show in um, for my work in particular. Um, but it's a great museum. Um, it's a small museum, but it's a really wonderful place. Oh, I can't wait to go. It's on. It's on. It's on my list to go. Yeah. Um, so we've kind of talked about um, Appalachia and um, Memphis, and you know, you have worked a lot of places all over the U.S. and, like we said, yeah. New York and San Diego. Uh, and so, as we travel the U.S., can you tell me a little bit more about um, how you made your way to Mississippi and in, in the time you sp have spent here? Yeah. Well, um, I originally went there because I was offered a job, a teaching job at Mississippi State. Um, and at the time I was coming out of that three-year residency at the um, Appalachian Center for Crafts and I needed a job. So then I made my way down to Mississippi. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, just traveling has been a big part of my practice over the years. And my initial reason for leaving New York was just, I was born and raised there and needed to go elsewhere. And it's kind of, um, that sort of mentality has kind of taken me all across the country to uh, Mississippi ultimately, so. So when you were um, a visiting assistant professor of sculpture at State or Mississippi State University, mm -hmm. what uh, what of your work do you really feel like brought you brought to that, to that experience, to your teaching? Well, they really wanted someone who was pretty well-versed in both woodworking and metalworking, so I I had that experience behind me, um, but I also brought in, um, I guess, sort of a mentality of having both a sculptural educational background and a crafts background. So I think having that blended background sort of um, was able, allowed me to teach all, all sorts of different classes, not just those rooted in sculpture or in crafts. I, could, I was able to teach both of them. Um, and I think the students I had there were, um, pretty great about it. I mean, they kind of all wanted to learn all sorts of different things. So it was, I was able to, I taught a metalworking class, I taught a furniture making class and I taught sculpture classes. So I was able to um, do a lot while I was there. Hi, I'm Melody Moody Thordis and you're listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour podcast. You can also hear the show on MPB Think Radio every Sunday afternoon at 5 p.m. To hear all our conversations with creative Mississippians, be sure to subscribe to the Mississippi Arts Hour podcast on your favorite podcasting app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. You're listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Think Radio. Each week on the Arts Hour, representatives from the Mississippi Arts Commission speak with different people working across the state. Today I'm speaking with Sophie Glenn. Sophie's work as a visual artist has been exhibited across the country, including at the Center for Art and Wood in Philadelphia and the Metal Museum in Memphis. Sophie is with us today talking about her career as a metal artist and furniture maker and her, her exploration of the relationship between metal and wood. So Sophie, before the break, we were, we were talking about um, your study of your art and um, learning your craft um, all across the U.S. And now I wanted to talk a little bit about your work in, um, in furniture and metal. And so can you talk to our listeners a little bit about the history and traditions of furniture making? Uh, and then we can kind of talk about how, how you explore that in the contemporary work that you're doing now. Yeah, uh, so furniture and woodworking, like, 
on paper kind of seem like they have an exclusive relationship, right? It's sort of like with, when one thinks of a piece of furniture, it's usually like a wooden chair or a wooden table. There's usually that like really quick association between those two things. Um, so as a metal worker coming into this, I kind of felt like I was left out of the equation a bit. I was just like, well, I, you know, I, my main material is steel, um, but I do dabble in woodworking and I got this education in woodworking and furniture design. So like, how do I really fit into that category of things? Um, and that's when I started to, uh, at first I was making wood and steel pieces, trying to find cohesive ways that the two materials can come together. Um, and it was really through an interaction I had with someone who was visiting my studio while I was at the um, Appalachian Center for Craft where they were like looking at a wooden steel piece I made and they were like, well, which part is the steel? <laughs> so it was, I was just, that kind of just like um, dumbfounded me a bit. I was just like, you can't recognize the two materials uh, side by side. And like the steel was powder coated. So it was a different color than the steel color. But, but that made me realize like, I, I think I'm doing a disservice to the steel by actually trying to cover it up and make it look like it should be with the wood. Um, so that's sort of what led me to kind of trick people into thinking they were looking at wood pieces, but actually they're made completely out of steel. Um, and then with that too, like, Woodworking is still like, I don't, I haven't like discredited it at all. Like, as I said before, I mean, the woodworking really is a vital part of my practice. I talked about kerf bending earlier and how I use that technique all the time. Um, but certainly the history of furniture making is like a big part of my work because I'm basically copying old pieces of furniture or pieces of furniture that people can really associate with. It's usually like, oh, I, my grandma used to have that chair in her house or something like that. Um, so it's, it's, I, sort of consciously choose pieces that um, are relatable to a lot of people or that can that people would easily recognize as a sort of quintessential piece of furniture. Um, and then once they see it in person or in context and they get a closer look at it and they see that the, uh, the areas that look worn out are actually rusted and not just like sort of aged wood and that sort of realization is sort of much more uh, satisfying for me. Um, <laughs> and then they also get a kick out of it too, because they were um, sort of tricked into believing it was one thing, but it's actually another. Yeah. So I, I really want to encourage people, you know, um, at this point to, to really check out some of your work. Um, SophieGlenn.com um, <laughs> uh, with two ends. Um, check that out because the work we're discussing, um, as Sophie mentioned, is it, it almost uh, tricks your eye and you really have to um, kind of re-examine I guess how closely you're looking at it, even in a photo. Mm -hmm. um, and it really draws, I mean, to me, it really draws the viewer in um, because you're like discovering different pieces of it um, to where it's like a delightful shock uh, <laughs> to figure yeah. it out. I've, I've literally gotten the opportunity to watch people look at your work <laughs> and watch and and you're waiting I don't know if you if you do that when people are looking for oh yeah you, like I'm way, yeah I'm <laughs> waiting for it to click it, it, it's almost like a the makes me think of the magic eye posters mm -hmm. where you're like wait they're gonna see it they're gonna see it oh it clicked yeah. um and so that's why I really encourage people listening to to look um and so I want to I want to kind of yeah delve into this I know that your uh Russ Never Sleeps series mm -hmm. um really, really looks at this. Um, and so, some of the pieces 
to me it looks like and i'm curious looks like um like a like an applicant like almost like a a, a steel wool maybe like a oh, there's yeah. like a rubbing application that makes it look kind of antiqued mm-hmm. um talk a little bit, bit more about like you said kind of disguising <laughs> in some ways um this steel as wood yeah so my main technique for that is i just use um spray paint so like a rattle can spray paint so nothing fancy so I'll, uh once a piece is done i will paint the entire surface um, and let it dry, of course, and then I'll sand areas of it back, and I sort of do that sort of strategically, like I'll sand areas where maybe the chair would have been picked up a lot, like under the seat or something like that, or by like the top uh, top rail, the crest rail, um, and then uh, once I get to the bare steel, I use a solution of uh, hydrogen peroxide, vinegar, and salt, which basically, once I spray it on the surface of the steel, rusts it instantly. Um, and that was uh, a technique I learned from Vivian Beer when I worked for her for a bit. Um, and that's what really gives it that, like that's really like the finishing touch, I think, making it the rusted part because it's sort of hiding it and also highlighting the fact that it's steel, which I found really interesting. Um, and it like, it does the job. <laughs> so it really tricks people into thinking that they're wood and they're definitely not. Um, other techniques I use are, there's one chair called Tommy Boy, which has, uh, it's, it looks like an upholstered seat and it has sort of this sort of decorative pattern on it. And that was used, it, that's made of steel. And to get that pattern, I basically took a piece of vinyl wallpaper and cut out the negative areas, um, applied that to the seat and then actually etched through it. So it had that difference in the um, patinas on it. So it's got like a copper patina um, before I put the vinyl on and then I uh, etch that surface and it sort of makes it bl- the uh, areas I cut out black. Um, so that's where that pattern kind of comes from. So there's, there's been a lot of experimentation with trying to make it look like it's wood. And then now I'm sort of veering into how to make s- steel into these sort of fibrous materials. So the last piece I made, uh, which is called Black Sheep, um, it's a corner chair, but the seat is woven and traditionally be woven out of a rush material. So sort of that fibrous wood material. Um, but I figured out a way to make that out of steel by using steel wool. Um, so I hand spun the steel wool and actually uh, weaved it like it would have been, or yeah, I guess weaved it is the correct uh, <laughs> past tense there. <laughs> so I actually uh, did the weaving exactly how it would be done for rush seating, but made out of steel wool instead. Um, so that's been sort of an interesting avenue into varying a little bit away from the woodworking, but still keeping in that same vein of furniture making. Um, but also just still using steel as much as I can. And you talked about this hand, so I'm just trying to get a visual. You talked about this hand spun steel wool. And what did you say the, um, the desire there is? So um, it's meant to mimic rush seating. So rush is like this fibrous material that's... T- traditionally used to make these kinds of woven seats. Um, I, I don't know where the material comes from originally, but in any case, uh, so what I did for the steel wool version was I got a huge roll, of, like a five pound roll of steel wool um, and basically uh, hand spun it into like quarter inch thick cords. Um, and then I wove it pretty much how it was it, traditionally it would have been woven. Um, so there's this particular pattern that you make to sort of make that X pattern that you see on that chair. 
Um, so I wove it exactly like that. Um, so that is really me kind of not really hiding the steel all that much because it's a, it, the steel wool is a different color than the rush. The rush is usually like a beige color. Um, mm -hmm. But there I'm really kind of highlighting or more, more so highlighting the fact that this is a steel piece and not a wood one, um, even though it does look like the traditional rush. When you go to your website, you immediately see these, I'm not sure what they're called, cane seating maybe? Um, oh, and the, you uh, yeah, I know, yeah, the rump shakers pieces. <laughs> yeah, yes, can you, can you describe or explain those? Because um, I'm so fascinated about how you're kind of interweaving those uh, in, in a way as well. Sure. Yeah, so um, the, the title rump shakers comes from the style of furniture it is, so it's a shaker style furniture, and it's a chair, mm. so rump. Um, uh, but to make that that seating, I actually took steel strapping, which um, I got from McMaster Car, I think. It's just really thin um, pieces of steel that's typically used for shipping like large like freight materials and just sort of keep them, keeping it all together. Um, so it's sort of a more industrial material, uh, but it's thin enough where I could actually weave it into that seat pattern that you see on that first image. Um, and instead of uh, finishing the welding underneath it, which one would typically do with, uh, it's called shaker tape, which is traditionally how shaker um, chairs were made. It's sort of this uh, braided cord, not cord's not the best word, but sort of strapping material. Um, so instead of completing the weaving underneath, I would actually weld it from underneath. So the uh, weaving you see there, it's really just on the surface and underneath it's just that bare weaving as well. Um, but welded underneath the rungs of the chair. Interesting. Okay, that that makes a lot of sense. Thanks for walking me through that one. Sure, yeah. Like I said, your your work is so much. I feel like um, you ask questions. You know, when you're looking as the viewer, you're you're asking questions. You're looking underneath. You're looking at it from all sides. <laughs> you know, and you're really exploring it in that way. Um, yeah. Another another part of your work that's so intriguing to me is you know, the, the element of humor that is kind of caused by that, but whether mm -hmm. it's like that surprise or just the way that you are um, putting this, as you said, traditional work into a more contemporary um, uh, look. So yeah. tell me if it is intentional, tell me about the intention behind kind of that exploration of humor as a device. Yeah, it's certainly intentional. Um, because I feel like a lot of, not just furniture making, but a lot of craft practices tend to take themselves too seriously. And perhaps that's a controversial thing to say on here, but I've, I've said it. So. <laughs> um, so in part of me, like kind of separating the furniture making from the woodworking, I personally wanted to interject that and sort of make light that, you, you know, like humor is actually a good um, leeway into getting people more interested in the work as well. Um, and sort of, like you said, brings it into a more contemporary uh, framework. So a good example of this is uh, a piece I made called Gorgeous George, which it's a Regency style chair in the back, back and seat are usually made out of like caning or some other sort of seat material. Um, but what's most prominent about those chairs is that they usually have either a landscape or a image of a nude woman painted on the back of them because they were um, they were made on commission and usually the person commissioning the piece wanted whatever image that they want on the back of that. So a nude woman on the back of a chair was just kind of this funny concept to me. So I really wanted to 
play around with that and put uh, the image of George Costanza in that sort of classic, uh, <laughs> um, that one episode where he's basically in his underwear posing on this little chaise lounge um, and sort of make this chair about the, for the female gaze as opposed to a chair being for the male gaze. So it was a really kind of a play on that idea. Um, and in, in such an iconic image as well. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> like, even if you haven't seen Seinfeld, like a lot of people still know that image for whatever reason. It's just been in our like popular culture for so long yeah. now. Um, and it's just, and even if they don't know who George Costanza is, it's just a funny image. <laughs> exactly. So, and I would argue, even if you don't know that it typically would have a woman. Right. right. It yeah. works on several levels. Yeah, it's um, just it's a funny piece. And I'd like, you know, I people get a joy out of it. So I, you know, I always like to make people laugh when I can. Um so yeah. Um well your your Rust Never Sleeps um series, which is one we you know keep kind of keep coming back to. Mm-hmm. Um and and you may uh, apologies if you've already said this, but wh- what is that a reference to? rest never sleeps yeah so it's a pretty much a direct reference to the neil young and crazy horse album of the same name um but what it's really in reference to is that was an album where neil young was sort of transitioning out of being this uh folk artist from like crosby sills nash and young and all that um into going into a more rock and roll like godfather of grunge kind of mind frame so that album was sort of this transitional period where he can sort of play both parts um, and sort of keep himself relevant at the same time in an ever-changing music industry. So I sort of felt like this body of work was a way that I could stay relevant in the furniture making field while still having my own unique voice in it. Um, so I didn't, so I, I don't really, I don't usually describe myself as a woodworker, even though I have a background in that, um, but I couldn't really find my voice in woodworking. It was really in the metalworking and the steel fabrication where I was able to really kind of express my thoughts and ideas about the furniture field as a whole. Um, so I feel like this was that album and like the, the whole idea behind that album sort of resonated with me quite a bit. Um, and then the title just kind of worked perfectly with the body of work too, because it's all about these rusty pieces of furniture. So um, yeah. I'm Melody Moody Thordis, and you're listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour podcast. You can also hear the show on MPB Think Radio every Sunday afternoon at 5 p.m. To hear all our conversations with creative Mississippians, be sure to subscribe to the Mississippi Arts Hour podcast on your favorite podcasting app. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. You're listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Melody Moody Thordis, and today I'm speaking with visual artist and Mac Fellowship recipient, Sophie Glenn. Sophie's career includes furniture making, steel fabrication, among other techniques and practices, and I'm so excited to be talking to her today. Um, So, Sophie, we have talked a lot about um, some of your pieces and some of the stuff you're working on, so let's bring it back um, and... For those listening, and if you'll just kind of 
let's define our terms, right? Let's mm-hmm. talk about some of the basics for people who may not be familiar. So let's start with welding, mm-hmm. um, you know, as a fabrication process with heat and pressure. And then let's kind of talk about the particular welding techniques that you've explored. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so welding is essentially a method of joining two pieces of metal together, typically. Um, and uh, as opposed to braze, brazing is sort of a lower temperature method of joining two materials, whereas welding, you're actually um, melting the two pieces together while also adding material to it to, to strengthen that joint and to make a larger piece out of it. Um, so the main type of welding I do, and there's different types of welding, uh, the main type I do is called TIG welding, which stands for tungsten inert gas. Uh, so the tungsten in this case is the electrode. So it's an electrical arc process. Um, and it, the inert gas is argon gas. So it's a combination of those two things mixed with electricity that create this electrical arc process that uh, um, creates enough heat to melt the two materials together. Um, so TIG welding is the main thing I use. There's also plasma cutting, which I do, uh, which is basically cutting through steel using another kind of arc process that cuts through the material, um, usually with an air compressor to help press- with pressure, essentially. Um, and then I also use my angle grinder like 90, 95% of the time. Um, and I can use that for finishing, like grinding um, and sanding pieces down. Uh, I also use it for cutting a lot. Uh, before I had acquired my plasma cutter, that was my main method of cutting cutting down material and cutting out shapes uh, with a cutoff wheel typically. Um, and then there's other, other machines and processes that I use too. Like I, I mentioned before, that I still use a lot of woodworking processes in my, my current practice. Um, so kerf bending as well as uh, other sort of woodworking type processes or usually woodworking processes. Um, and then I also do a lot of bending. So uh, I'm in the process of setting up my own shops. So I'm still working through uh, tools and machines, but I've sort of been acquiring those that I use most or used to use most often um, and, and slowly getting that up and running. So I hope that sort of answered the question a bit. <laughs> Yeah, that helps. So, um, you know, so, so thinking about TIG welding is kind of like smaller and delicate, more, more precise. So tell me a little bit about the hollow form fabrication technique. Like, is that what it sounds? Are those, are the forms themselves hollow? And is that for weight? Tell me about how that works. Well, for me, it's kind of an issue of weight. So I need to keep the weight down. So I'm not dealing with these solid pieces of material. And ultimately the chair weighs like a thousand pounds, right? Right. um, So like hollow form uh, fabrication is basically creating different forms uh, and different shapes, uh, usually out of sheet steel, but could also be tubing um, and sort of other materials that are are essentially hollow. and creating these different shapes out of them to keep the weight down. So for a lot of my work, I do, a sh- I do this with sheet metal. Um, so just flat sheets and I can cut different shapes out and sort of weld them all together to create these hollow forms. And then others like with the tubing and the kerf bending, which I mentioned earlier, I can, uh, again, this was sort of a matter of not having the tool at my disposal, but I could, make curve cuts in it, uh, bend it around a form to create a, a curved form and then weld it all back together and then like redo that same process that I need to make a more severe curve. Uh, so there's different methods of uh, hollow form fabrication. Um, 
So like building cars is a good example because the, the weight of a car needs to be quite light in comparison to the material. So a lot of car forms are made through hollow fabrication, um, but also vessel forming for small metals like making silverware and uh, sort of these nice silver or copper uh, cups and bowls and things. That's, kind of, that's in that same vein of hollow form fa fabrication as well. Um, yeah, that makes a lot of sense that when you really think about these raw materials being so heavy, <laughs> when right, you yeah. use quite a bit of them, mm -hmm. uh, that makes a lot of sense. Are there, are there techniques that happen with, within the forms themselves? I, I'm imagining, um, like you said, like a, a cup or a bowl mm -hmm. or something like that, or even a tube. Um, yeah. where as you kind of create that hollow form, are there things that people do with like the inside? I'm just curious. Oh, well, it, it sort of depends on the form. So if you're making a form that's more or less enclosed at the top, then there's not a whole lot you can do about the inside. Uh, mm -hmm. You can make tools to sort of address it, but at the end of the day, is anyone going to see the inside of a, a vase form? Probably not. <laughs> um, but if you're making like a shallow bowl or something, what you can do is after you've hammered, usually you hammer that form either with a traditional hammer and some sort of swage block or some sort of uh, even a hollowed out log. Uh, you can also do it through uh, what's called an English wheel, which has these dies on it. And you just sort of run the piece of sheet steel through these dies and it create, and the dies are at different curvatures. Um, the severity of the curvature, the severity of the curvature can change a bit. Uh, so, you can create all sorts of different forms with that. Uh, and, but if you're say doing it by hand, by just hammering it, what you can do is planish it afterward, which is just um, basically getting, it's another hammering technique, but it's made with a planishing hammer. Um, and you would sort of soften those facets you create by creating that curved form. And you can get a, ultimately a, so almost a mirror finish on it. Um, wow. That would take a lot of work. <laughs> right. So, but, but then you can also sand it too, um, sand it and buff it to get that sort of mirror finish as well. Um, wow, fascinating. Well, um, so Toby, you are a recipient of Max Artist Fellowship in Visual Arts this mm -hmm. year, 2021. You've also been a recipient of a rapid response mini grant from Mac, which is part of our emergency relief effort for uh, helping working artists in Mississippi during COVID. Yeah. You uh, have gotten quite a lot of grants um, in your career. I know you received a Get Ready grant from Surf Plus, mm -hmm. a Career Opportunity grant from South Arts, and you were nominated for a United States Artist Fellowship Award. So I'm curious to hear a little bit more about um, those grants if you'd like to share, but um, I'd, you know, for artists out there who are listening, who are pursuing or thinking about pursuing grants, um, what your experience has been like um, in, in that realm and, and, or what advice you might offer to, to artists looking for grant support? Sure. Uh, so I was poor <laughs> for a long time. Um, and I needed a way to, uh, help create my work. So I needed some sort of financial backing in order to do that. So which is, that's usually my impetus for applying to grants to begin with. Um, but doing this also is allows my work to be seen by a multitude of different people as well and leads to other opportunities. So it's not just the financial backing that's beneficial from applying to grants. It's also these other opportunities that can branch out from that, um, leading to show opportunities or things like this where I'm on, on the radio, you know, so it's uh, 
there's all sorts of different opportunities that can come from just applying to a grant like this. Um, so that's been really helpful in um, prolonging my practice and making sure I can still make this kind of work. Tips and tricks for getting grants. Uh, I think one, taking really good photos and co cohesive photos is a really good um, pointer. So um, I've juried shows before and I've seen really bad photos and that, that can be a make or break thing between you can have the best application in the world, but if someone has better photos than you and has an equally good application, like they're gonna get that grant. Um, but also being really cohesive and um, clear with an artist statement helps. Um, it helps a lot actually, because if you, you can make the, again, you can make the best work in the world and even have the best photos of that work. But if someone can't accurately understand what you're trying to get across through that artist statement, then it's gonna be really hard for someone to interpret the work how you want it to be seen. Um, so it's it's a mixture of a few different things in getting these grants. Um, and again, I've been very fortunate to have received so many over the years um, and it's been very helpful. Um, but even just getting the first one sort of gives you enough practice and sort of more confidence to apply to other ones in, in the future, right? So I think like there might be a little bit of apprehension about applying for the first grant because uh, like, oh, I might not get it or there's probably someone who's better than me, yada, yada, yada. But um, you, can't, you can't get a grant unless you apply for it. So um, ultimately getting, having the confidence to actually apply for these grants is probably the first step. And then making sure you have all the right materials in front of you is the second step. Whether, and then when it comes to photos, like you can take your own photos and just kind of figure out your own system for that. Or you can, if you have the means, you can pay someone to photograph for you. Um, and just making sure it's all cohesive and looks good and there's good lighting and it's, you know, not on a bedsheet backdrop that's <laughs> really dark and shadowy, you know? Um, so yeah, I think those are sort of the main tips I have for applying to grants. And Well, as in my role as director of grants at the Arts Commission, I will say these are wonderful tips. <laughs> Thank you uh, for sharing them. And just yeah. uh, on that note, we have a new grant, a new mini grant round opening October 18th. Um, so encourage any, encouraging any professional artists or arts organizations to take advantage of that. You can find information at arts.ms.gov backslash grants. Uh, so that's coming up and um, that's a, a great, uh, great advice. And also be sure to contact Mac. Uh, let us know. We're yeah. always happy to help. We're happy to walk you through some of the best practices um, mm -hmm. and you know, we like to get, we like to give artists and arts organizations grants. So we are here to be your advocate and to help um, people pursue that. So that's coming up October 18th. And those applications will be due on November 7th. So as we kind of start to wrap up our conversation, um, I want to ask you, um, when you are stuck creatively, is there an activity or a practice that kind of helps you get back to it, get back, you know, to your next piece or, or the piece you're working on? Yeah. And it kind of sounds a bit mundane, but sometimes like the best thing I've done is to stare at a blank wall <laughs> and just kind of <laughs> let my mind wander. Cause sometimes like I can just get bogged down in my own thoughts and just like, 
deadlines and all this other stuff that's going on that I'm thinking about. So if I just dedicate a wall in my house or in my studio, that's blank. And I can just stare at it for a little bit. That kind of helps to clear out the mind and to figure out like, okay, what, what can I prioritize? And um, if I'm stuck on a work specifically, I can, that sort of let, allows me to figure out like what my intentions for this work are. Um, what is it that I want to get across? And it sort of just all like, um, like the Marie Kondo methods, like getting rid of all that stuff you don't need or doesn't bring you joy. It's like kind of that sort of thing. Um, again, it sounds really mundane, but it does work for me. Um, but also just like sketching and doing some writing here and there has also been very helpful. Um, and then sometimes just being away from the studio or wherever you're working helps too. Because sometimes, again, it's like this, maybe you're just too far into a particular thing and that's why the creative juices aren't quite flowing. So sometimes just taking a break from it can help or just like going on a hike or just being outside for a little bit, going out in the garden or something can um, get those creative juices flowing again. Um, and just returning to these initial thoughts can give you a new, new perspective or just a new set of eyes into what you were initially thinking about and struggling with. Thanks for listening to this MPB Think Radio podcast. MPB depends on support from listeners. So if you can, please contribute today at mpbonline.org. Hi, I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app.